Good morning, everybody. We are continuing our study in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. You'll find it about halfway through the uh, first half of the Bible, uh, pretty close to Psalms and Proverbs. And so if you will uh, begin to find your way there, if you want to pull one of the Bibles that are in the pew racks in front of you, on page uh, 706, you'll find the page of our text. You can follow along on the screen if you like, or if you have a digital device, you're probably already there. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, busyness, and a fool's voice with much, many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay whatever you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. May God help us to understand this is most precious word. The beginning of our our text starts with this idea of guard your steps as you go into the house of God. Obviously, our, our subject matter this morning is the church. And let's make a couple of preliminary thoughts up front. And the first thing is you are a beautiful and life-giving community an expression of God's kingdom on earth. That's never to be taken lightly. There is great joy and grace to be counted among you. But at the same time, I have to admit, I have not always loved the church. In fact, I started out as a critic of the church. It's, it's easy to to spot her flaws. It's easy to point them out and to wish it was better. I almost identify with one writer who said that he tries to keep his children from going to church because he doesn't want to ruin their faith. Sadly, this is something Stephen was trying to bring out at the very beginning when he was talking about the 60% who grow up in the church but leave the church as adults. Sadly, many have walked away from the church, not in spite of our work, but too often because of it. This is why when C.S. Lewis wanted to communicate how Christianity sometimes... uh, 
uh, never goes deep enough into the heart. And so he's having uh, uh, this represented in a fantasy between uh, an, an older devil, a younger devil, and what they called his patient, this new believer. First, before he became a believer, how do you prevent him uh, from becoming one? And that doesn't happen. He becomes a Christian. And, and so the, the, the younger one, uh, uh, his job is to convince him to give up his faith and, and uh, the uncle uh, uh, tries to uh, convince the younger devil, just take him to church. This is the way that uh, C.S. Lewis puts it in the screw tape letters. It's, it says, the people there, they, they sing out of tune. They have boots that squeak. I, evidently, that meant something in the 1950s. They have double chins. They wear odd clothes. They are just weird people. The patient will see that Christianity is ridiculous simply by going to church. We have to, we have to understand the church is a lot like our bodies. When we look in the mirror, we see all of its flaws. But the truth is, you only got one. And you can't get rid of it without getting rid of you. And so for all of the complaining and all of the criticism and all of the flaws of the church, it is the body of Christ after all. No matter how disenchanted you and I get at the church or disappointed by something the church does or or doesn't do, It is the bride of Christ. She belongs to God for whom he sent his son to die. The devil is the one that wants us to hate the church. Because if he can't stop the crucifixion, which he didn't, the next best thing is to kill the church. The culture sees the church today as irrelevant at best, and dangerous at worst. And that's not going to probably change for a while. That's where we find ourselves in history. The truth is, most of us in this room have a love-hate relationship with the church. That is, sometimes we love it and sometimes we don't. And so I just want to, before we go to the Lord's Supper, answer two questions this morning from this text. And the first one is... How do we relate to the church? And obviously, I'm talking about the local church. I, I know there, there's this thought in, in, our, in the Christian culture that I can be part of the universal church. That is, I can reject the local church, but I'm, I'm a Christian, so I'm part of the universal church. Paul would have never understood that. In fact, he would say that's an anathema. Because you can't see the church without its local expression as imperfect as it might be. The only way to taste and touch and see and feel and interact and love and hate the local uh, the church is through the local church. And so Paul wouldn't have understood that, but we have to admit up front, how do we then relate? If, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of the church, the leader of the church, then how are we supposed to relate to it? And I just give you these three ideas from the text. 
And the first one is the teacher issues a call to the local church, to the people of the church, the assembly. He says, guard your steps. What? When you go. What's he doing? He's assuming that if we are followers of God, if we love Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of the church, that we go to church. And so the very first thing is we are present in the church. He assumes that all believers find their expression of their faith in the encouragement and the building up of the body through the church. And so our attitude toward the church is one of what? Loyalty. Commitment. Binding ourselves together with others. This will not be tested while you're going through the new members class. That's when you're in love with the church. That's, that's kind of like liking the datings, a part of, uh, of two people who eventually get married. That's not a good time to evaluate your marriage. Is it on the honeymoon? No, when our relationship to the church is tested is when it doesn't go well, when we're not happy, when the church has done something that we don't like. And what are we supposed to do with that? When, when the body disappoints me, when the preacher disappoints me, when the leadership disappoints me, when my Bible study leader disappoints me, when the women's director disappoints me, when the men's leader disappoints me, what do I do with that? Well, he tells you in verse 4, when you vow a vow, keep your vow. When you vow a vow, pay it. So he says in verse 4, these vows were done in the church. That's how it starts out. When you go to the house of God, guard your steps. Because in the church, you have made vows. I love uh, wedding vows. I've been doing weddings for a long, long time. And now I've watched the trends come and go. There was a horrible period in the 90s when I first got into ministry when uh, couples were really saying, we want to write our own vows. We don't like those traditional ones. Everybody's doing that. We want to do something different. But there is something beautiful and valuable about those traditional values and not what you think. Not just that it connects you that, hey, these are the same vows my parents did or my grandparents did or the, my grandparents' parents did. That's really cool. But the really great thing about traditional vows is they're not present-oriented. They don't describe how I feel today, but what I will do when I don't feel like I do today into the future. Do you remember them? Maybe not. Will you take this woman? Will you take this man? I will be faithful when? In sickness and in health. In rich and in poor. Do you remember how that kind of goes? It goes from two extremes. When things are going well and when things are not going well, I'm not going anywhere. When, when, when you get into a car accident and your legs don't work out, I'm not checking out. When your mental state seems to slip, 
when we get older. I'm not checking out of this relationship. When you and I have uh, huge disagreements about how to live our lives together, how to raise our children, where to live, what kind of job to have, I'm not leaving. He says we do that in the church. We do that in the church, which means we do that before God. I'm not trying to make them sound more important than they are. I'm just trying to get us to recognize they are more important than we recognize. Those of you who are members of EP, you may not remember, uh, but when you became a member, there were these five vows we did. And the first three simply are recognizing where you stand with God. And then four begins to turn from your stand to God to your stand with the church, the body that you're joining. And one of the vows goes like this. I will support the church in its worship and work to the very best of my ability. He's agreeing with the teacher of Ecclesiastes. When you go to church, when you stand before God and you vow, one of the things you're vowing is to be present. Because it is incredibly hard to be part of the body if you're not. The truth is, you're not always going to like the church. Licks, I do not have the expectation that you are because if I don't always like the church, how can I expect you to always like the church? She will disappoint you. I will disappoint you. Leadership will disappoint you. Sunday school teachers will disappoint you. Bible study leaders will disappoint you. The person in the pew next to you will disappoint you. The question isn't, will you be disappointed? The question is, what will you do? I just want to encourage you not to do what Anne Rice did. Anne Rice wrote those great little novels on vampires. And she became a Christian and, and she uh, joined a church. And for about 10 years, she was the one that when, when uh, Christian leaders wanted to show how the gospel is impacting believers, she's one of the ones we would always trot out. Kind of a celebrity Christian. But after a while, being involved in the church, she got disappointed. She got disenchanted. And so she wrote an article in the New York Times. And this is what she said. Today, I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ, but not to being a Christian or being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, deservedly infamous group for these past 10 years. I've tried. I failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will not allow me. In the name of Christ, I quit. When you go to church and you make your vow, it obligates you to be present. So, 
That's not an option. Jesus loves the church. He died for the church. How can I not love her? How can I be present with her no matter how disappointing she gets? Because it is the church that gives us our view of Jesus. It is the church, when we're present, that we get that view. But not just simply be present, but be attentive. The most important part of the worship service is what we're doing right now, where the scriptures are read and then explained through the preaching of the word, because it is then that God speaks to us. Yes, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper, and that is how he shows his word. But the regular preaching of the word of God is how God has decided to speak to his people. And he gives us this warning about sitting in church, being present. He says in verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. What's he saying? The word dream there, I wish it would be a little more exact. It's actually precisely attached to a certain kind of dreaming. We would call it today daydreaming. You know some of that stuff that you're doing right now? (laughs) He's warning us that when we're present, that we need to be attentive. And one of the enemies of attentiveness, listening, is to daydream. And so he's warning us as we go to church, because that's where we get our view of Jesus, where we hear what God has done for us through Christ. Pay attention. Because daydreaming isn't just entertainment. It prevents us from hearing. You don't hear much when you daydream. That's why in verse 1 he says, draw near to what? This is verse 1. Draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they're doing is evil. But one third thing, if it... He's he's calling us to be present, to be attentive, but also what? Be a disciple, be a learner, be present. Listen and learn. Worship is also disciple-making. We tend to think of we come in here to worship and then we go and do ministry. No, we're being ministered right here, right now. It wasn't that long ago that Christians didn't own Bibles. So the only input that they had was the teaching and preaching of the Word, whether that was at home after, after a, a dad or mom would sit down and teach or simply in the church. But worship is disciple-making. We are disciples. And what does that imply? If we are disciples in the church we are not consumers of the church and if we're not cons- if we are disciples in the church we are not the critics of the church one of the terrible diseases in the american church which was not possible in the early church is church hopping that 
I hear that down the street they've got the a better youth ministry or better music or a better preacher and I'm just going to move and, and consume. What does that tell our children about the church? If we don't teach our children that the church is a family, you don't leave the family. This is the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says that we are not connoisseurs or tasters of churches. There are legitimate reasons to leave local churches. So don't hear me not say there aren't. When the church departs from orthodoxy, when the environment becomes toxic, those are all good reasons to leave. But one of the things that we forget when we realize that we're called to the church, that we vow to the church, is that makes us all what? Not consumers, but what? Builders of community. It's not that there's this great community and we're asking you to join it. We need you to help build the community that we have. Be present, be attentive, and be disciples in the church. But why? Why do those things? He tells us, verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is where? In heaven. And you are where? On earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We cannot have a casual approach to God's house. Why? Because God is here. You know, sometimes one of the things that I think the charismatic church has taught us Presbyterians is the expectancy that God shows up when we show up. Where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Do you realize that this morning the holy God is here? And He is not only listening, He is speaking. The preacher tells us in verse 7. Fear God, because He's a holy God. He is not like us in many significant ways. But yet He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In fact, in the the Old Testament, if you want to do a survey of encounters with God, they go like this. One uh, husband turns to his wife after they've seen the Lord and says, Prepare to die, for today we have seen our Lord. Or Isaiah in Isaiah 6, he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I'm among a people of unclean lips. I am undone. Or you go all the way to the end of the Bible and it says this, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory. He is always holy. And yet, this is what's incredible about the church. This incredible unbelievably just holy God invites us into relationship with him to come in to his presence. That makes this very unique experience that we have every Sunday. If we fear God rightly, then we have nothing to be afraid of when we enter his presence, which brings us to the second reason is because we are forgiven Verse 6, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? 
He shouldn't because of what Christ has done. Psalm 22, I will tell you your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. In the midst of the assembly, in church, I will praise you. That's the same psalm he quotes from the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The church is the gathering of God's people. And the church is also the gathering of the messy and the imperfect people. If your expectation is that we are better, that we are superior, that, we, that we've got it all together, that we look nice on Sunday, we are the imperfect. We're messy. We don't do it right. We don't always communicate well. That's not an excuse not to communicate well. We just don't do it. We don't always think through our plans to all of the implications of all the plans. We don't come to church to gain acceptance. We come to church because we are accepted. Which brings us to the last reason of coming to church. is because we have peace. We forget that the Bible says that since the fall... Man and God have been at war. Because of sin, God is our enemy. Until on the cross, there was peace. Peace was won through Jesus. Ephesians 2 says that he brought down the wall of what? Hostility. I was listening to a friend of mine this week describe, he went to a church in Memphis. If you don't know Memphis's history, it's, it's where Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was assassinated. It was deep-rooted racism. And, and when he went to the church, they, they, they called him because he had this tremendous ministry uh, in Augusta of drawing African-Americans into this incredibly white church. And the reason that's important is this particular church, First Perez Augusta, was known as having a slave gallery and then the white folks down on the floor. And so he brought a lot of work in racial reconciliation. And this church in Memphis, Second Pres, wanted that in their city. And so they called George. George is a little younger than I am. Not a lot, but a little bit. And as soon as he started preaching reconciliation, he started getting the letters and the death threats from his own congregation. You see, we don't always recognize that there's a war going on, a spiritual battle that only the gospel heals. Joshua Bell, if you've not known him, he's a a tremendous violinist. He lives in Washington, D.C. And in one particular uh, Sunday, um, weekend, he wasn't playing. He decided that he was going to go play for the common man. So he dressed uh, not in his tuxedo, but in uh, street clothes. And he took his... uh, a two and a half million dollar Stradivarius uh, down to the subway to play. And he played these great majestic uh, pieces like Bach and, and Beethoven there. And thousands of people walked by, but only seven stopped to listen. Can you imagine? The reason I tell you that is so much like the church. Yes, we're imperfect, but not because the master is not a master artist. But because the church is made up of imperfect people, sin-filled people even, and thousands walk by, 
why the masterpiece is being played called the gospel. But only few sit to listen. But that's why he wrote the masterpiece. He wrote the masterpiece because when it is played, when it's listened to, when the spirit moves, imperfect people are healed. And if we come into the house of God where the masterpiece is being played and every Sunday it's being played, we've discovered that we're part of the masterpiece that was written. And this is why we go to church. I think this is, if this were our expectation of church, we would never miss one performance of the masterpiece of the master artist, Jesus, the bridegroom of the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the meal that is before us, the meal that we've already consumed from the word, and now you're going to show us the masterpiece by calling us to remember what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Help us to eat and to drink deeply the grace you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen.